Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. Um, thank you very much for taking time to be with us and our guest and learning all kinds of great stuff about broadband. The uh, program sponsor today is Hiawatha Broadband Communications, an FTTP provider that's committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world. You can check out Hiawatha Broadband at www.hbci.com. So we're here to provide useful information and insights to help uh, communities and uh, companies and nonprofits get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. So with that, let us just get into our show for today. And today our guest is Dan Gallagher, who is the CEO and founder of the nonprofit corporation Open Cape. Now, Open Cape started in 2007 with one thing in everyone's mind, which is, or was, and still is, you know, how do we get better broadband into the Cape Cod area of Massachusetts? So, Dan, thank you, and welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And uh, so let's start with an overview, you know, what, uh, you know, what Open Cape is up to. So what was the failure in the marketplace that convinced the community to take the initiative that ultimately resulted in forming Open Cape? Sure. The, uh, I think uh, I, I took a, a position at Cape Cod Community College uh, as the CIO there in 2005, um, found that the college, which has about 5,000 students, uh, had three T1 lines that was paying about $45,000 a year for it. And I was uh, shocked, frankly, and, and started to look for other resources. Um, and for, if I had been in, in the metropolitan Boston area, I would have had you know multiple choices and much lower rates. Uh, but really on the Cape, I found I was without options uh, in terms of finding other vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I, I, I started to talk to other folks, and I got together with the, three other people. Uh, Art Gaylord, who's the uh, uh, IT director for the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, Teresa Martin, who's a sort of a serial entrepreneur here on Cape Cod. And at that time was the CEO of the Cape Cod Technology Council. And a guy named Gary Delius, who was the uh, MIS director for one of the towns here. Uh, we all got together and said this wasn't just Cape Cod Community College's problem, it was the whole region's problem. So we asked uh, if anybody was interested in coming to talk about that. In 2006, we invited them to come uh, to Cape Cod Community College, and about 100 people from across the spectrum showed up to talk about this problem that they were having for their business or their organization, and that's really what got us started. Huh. And so how many miles are away from Boston are you? Well, uh, the, the the Cape Cod Canal is probably about 60 miles from Boston. Uh-huh. Um but it, it is an island, and uh, we are somewhat remote from uh, um, the, the populated areas of Boston, and and we're we're, we're dealt with in that way uh, by a lot of uh, utilities, et cetera. Uh huh. Wow. So it was just basically just a lack of um, of options, really. Yeah, uh, and so you, you could think of us as not being, you know, that, that very rural area that has nothing, a la uh, Western Massachusetts, which is like has has issues of no broadband, just dial-up services. We're sort of in between. We're not an urban area uh, or, a, or a dense metropolitan area. Uh, we're not rural. We're in between, sort of. So we have a, some services, but not services adequate to, uh, for example, a community college that has 5,000 students uh-huh. who has a need for us, you know, um, uh, high capacity, not only down speeds, but up speeds, 
um, and a lot of redundancy requirements. The same thing's true for the, the you know the, the expansive Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and other businesses in general who have a need for uh, symmetrical services, high capacity services, and a competitive pricing model as well. Uh, and, and we just did not have that sort of thing down in our area. Interesting, interesting. So let's talk about some of the process of um, forming the nonprofit. So you started with uh, an initial outreach. You started talking to people in the community. You started getting a feel that there was indeed a shortcoming that was not minor, that it, that it needed something serious to address it. How did you get from that to, oh, let's start a let's start a nonprofit? Yeah, so we had this uh, meeting in 2006 of about 100 people, uh, and, and uh, as uh, Teresa Martin, who was one of the participants, said, you know, if you're here to complain about things, you're in the wrong place. If you're here to do something about it, you're in the right place. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and we said, we all knew at that point that the only way our problem was going to get addressed was if we addressed it ourselves. At that time, you might recall, Verizon had sold off its main New Hampshire and Vermont territory to Fairpoint. Um, they had announced publicly that they were not going to bring their files product to our region that sort of thing was going on, and we said, we really are going to have to uh, find a way to do this ourselves uh, uh-huh. if we're going to correct the problem. So we formed a steering committee originally that, that had a, a representation model that covered the region geographically as well as functionally, so all the way from the Plymouth area to Provincetown, which is the tip of Cape Cod. We had some representation, and we had a, a good match of folks uh, from uh, town-based IT services, a town board of selectmen, member, uh, a town manager, business people. We had a good, uh, you know, cross-section of people on that steering committee. Uh, we looked at options like, could the county do this? And for those of your listeners around the country who, who aren't familiar with the New England uh, area, uh, we don't use a county-based model of government here. It's largely small-town-based government, uh-huh. and the counties are, uh, are not that dominant in the government picture. So uh, for us, the, the, the county... Uh, though our county, Barnstable County, is somewhat more robust than many of the other counties in, in Massachusetts, it was, didn't seem the right path to go, that we felt a private nonprofit was the way to go uh, in order to achieve uh, the goals that we set out for ourselves, which were to improve uh, the amount of bandwidth that was available and the options that were available to institutions such as our own. Uh-huh. And then that was then the... the um vision, if you will, then to, to get this thing that everyone was able to, to, to buy into. Yes, we, and we, we originally went and got some initial money as well. We went to uh, the Cape Cod Economic Development Council, and we asked them for $50,000 of seed money to help us to do some engineering work and studies and things uh, to really, you know, uh, encapsulate, encapsulate the, the, the problem that we had and what the solutions might be. Uh-huh. Uh, we further went for another $150,000 from the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative, which supports efforts to improve economic development uh, in regions like ours. Uh, and we use that money, again, for engineering studies and understanding the problem and, the, and what the potential solutions were. Uh, we even did some proof of concept. Now, this is well before there was any stimulus money. Uh, we were looking at what was possible for us at that time, largely being a microwave solution, and that, so we even had a proof of concept where we set up some microwave over water, some of the more challenging links to make sure that it would work uh-huh. uh, and, and prove the case. So we, we did some of that work uh, with that initial seed money. And then in 2008, Governor Deval Patrick had a, uh, a bill called the Broadband Bill, which um, basically tried to identify resources that could be used in the Commonwealth to address broadband and ensure its you know, ubiquitous presence throughout the, throughout the Commonwealth. 
Uh, he, he was well aware of the, ma- the Western Massachusetts issues where there is no broadband in many towns and many communities out there. Uh, and he was also made aware of what the issues were on Cape Cod. So he, he passed the bill that was the uh, broadband bill is the short title of it, uh, mm-hmm. that created the Massachusetts Broadband Institute uh, and also created a $40 million, what he called the incentive fund, which was just a, a, a grouping of general obligation bonds that could be used to advance broadband. So that was 2008, 2009. We worked on that, and it was pa- well, it was actually passed, I think, in August of 2008. So as you can see, we were thinking about these issues well in advance of the stimulus uh, money. Right now, so so basically, tell me again the, the the point person then that was pushing all the legislation through. That was the governor. Yes, Governor Deval Patrick. Um, okay. Uh, so recognized this as an issue early in his administration. Okay, so he took an, an active role legislatively then. I mean, it sounds like you – know, you know, I read about different governors, and they kind of wait for legislation to bubble up, and they either support it or not. But it sounds like he got really into the process and helped move things along. Yes, he did. And, and there was a, a great deal of support within uh, committees within the Senate and House uh, of, of Representatives here in Massachusetts – uh, and, and we know uh, we worked uh, very closely with the state senators and representatives from our region uh, to ensure that our needs were addressed within that bill. So there was an early recognition as early as 2008 uh, in our state uh, that, frankly, broadband is uh, the critical infrastructure for economic activity in the 21st century, and uh, we wanted to make sure that all of our, uh, all of our regions, all of our citizens have access to that. Mm-hmm. So in this environment, it was fairly easy to create a uh, an organization right because you're having this positive legislation you were getting seed money and so forth from your general observation of other communities and other states because i'm sure you talk to a lot of people that are doing similar stuff is it easy to get this initial stage done this initial uh non-profit uh, to come together well i i mean clearly um a recognition of a common problem uh and and the common solution is the key ingredient here. As I said, we're not really county-based up here, so um, whereas you might live in Charles County, Maryland, or Fairfax County, Virginia, um, et cetera, you, you, know, you have this sort of identity within the county. Um, we, were, we were fortunate in that people who live on Cape Cod have this secondary identity, so we all see ourselves as Cape Codders, regardless of whether we live in Provincetown or Falmouth or Sandwich. So that, that's an advantage that we had, that there's a common identity. Mm-hmm. Um, other thing is a common recognition that there is a problem, uh, and that resulted because there had been some uh, activity from the, the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce that had a, uh, uh, a demogra- demographer come in and give uh, uh, presentations at what were called economic summits in 2008 and 2009 to talk about the demographics of Cape Cod, which were largely pushing towards uh, the outflow of young people, uh, the aging of our population, which is a national problem but more severe here in our region, our reliance and over-reliance on what are seasonal businesses of, as you know, hospitality and tourism and, and second homeowners, mm-hmm. uh, not make up for a viable year-round economy that can be sustained. And, and the demographer really pointed this out to everybody, that we have a real problem uh, with our economic makeup uh, that is not sustainable in the long term, and we need to make a really tremendous effort to uh, diversify our economy in such a way that we have a much more diverse and vibrant year-round economy, not totally reliant on the seasonal tourism-type economy. So everybody recognized sort of this this common problem of we need to 
stop the outflow of young people. We need to diversify our economy here. We need to expand the year-round economy. So that was going on uh, at the same time. And then, you know, in explaining to people what are the solutions, we, we use some very old examples of, uh, we, for example, I commonly go and give presentations at towns, um, you know, events and things. And I have a slide that shows the canals of the 1820s here in our country. Um, and, and I talk about those as, you know, the instruments by which we moved good services and people around this country. Uh, mm-hmm. They were the infrastructure of economic activity and, got, and frankly, civic engagement with your government. And, and, and in the 1850s, if you didn't get a, you know, a railroad station in your town, um, you, you largely died economically. And, uh, and if you didn't get the highway and the off-ramp from President Eisenhower in the 1950s, again, the region did not develop, it did not, it did not have a vibrant economy. And the same thing is true for fiber optics in the 21st century, they, it, it, that it is the the, the infrastructure for engaging in economic activity in this century. And if you don't have it, you will not thrive. In fact, you will probably fail, and, uh, and your region will suffer all that. Uh-huh. So it's access to the infrastructure, and you've got to create some sort of off-ramp. And if I'm following what you're saying correctly, it is the understanding of that need and the severity of the need is what moved people to take action rather than wait for the incumbents or anyone, for that matter, to to step in. Yeah, there has to be, you know, within your region, not only the recognition of the problem, uh, what the potential solution is, but but the willingness to collaborate and the need for some leadership. So uh, we 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 sort of have a broader group that we now belong to called uh, Smarter Cape, mm-hmm. uh, which. Uh, takes all the different silos that you might think of. So, for example, uh, the partnership of, of Smarter Cape is made up of Open Cape. Think of us as the underpinning infrastructure. Um, but also the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Cape Cod Commission, which is the governmental regulatory body here, the Cape Cod Technology Council, the Cape Cod Economic Development Council. All of us meet weekly to talk about n- not just building broadband, but how do you use it to enhance your economy uh, and 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 improve the government services that are delivered to citizens and reduce the cost of those services. So it, it's you have to have all of those things. Uh, and I think if you talk to anybody in Chattanooga or Lafayette, Louisiana, who have had some success with this, uh, they, they'll tell you the same thing. Uh, it isn't just about building the infrastructure. It's about all of those entities working together towards a common purpose. Right, and that uh, that's clearly what has to happen, or at least from everything I've seen and every every community I've talked to, that is the common denominator for those communities that are moving things forward. Now, you mentioned a group, your steering committee had a cross-section of interests and geographies and, and communities and so forth that were involved. Um, how easy is it to keep that group both focused and moving forward. Sure. So uh, the steering committee ultimately became the board of directors of um, the Open Cape Corporation, the nonprofit corporation. Um, so that, those folks who began as steering committee members became the board of directors. And we continue to have our board, um, a major focus of it is to continue to have that representation from around the region geographically and functionally and to adjust it with some growth in the size of the board, uh, but also the, the diversity of the board. Are we getting the skills that we need? Do we have the interests we feel should be represented? All the, so it's our board of directors for the corporation 
that now really re- makes up the representation of that interest, those different interests across our region. And and their focus now, our boards largely is, you know, we obviously are involved in the BTOP project that we have to build mm-hmm. 350,000 fiber and uh, a microwave public safety system and a co-location center. But that's going to end here shortly. It's, you know, before we're all going to blink our eyes and the time's going to be up and we're going to be completed with our projects, it's what do you do with it after that? And so you have to think always uh, a little bit ahead here. How do you keep that group engaged? Do they represent the interests of the region? Are they moving us in the direction and transitioning us from uh, a group that was largely interested in, in getting the money and then building the project to how are we going to use this to our greatest advantage? So it's really our board of directors where we look to that. Mm-hmm. So that makes a lot of sense there, and um, and then probably obviously a lesson for others to to follow as well. There was um, uh, you and I had a conversation a couple of years ago, I think it was, and, uh, for the book that I was writing, uh, fighting the next great fight, the good next fight, fighting the next good fight, and you talked about this committee and they represented uh four tiers of support for the for the project. You want to describe those again cuz I was, I found that very interesting when we talked about it. Well, we try to keep obviously uh you know the different stakeholder communities engaged and those are things like uh government entities. Um so that's your municipal public safety folks. Uh education and research are another one uh which is uh, the higher education folks, the K-12 education, um, the, re- the Woods Hole Oceanographic Research uh, folks uh, are key. The business community uh, is another a big one. And another one is uh, the healthcare industry is another big uh, constituency, obviously, that we're interested in. So uh, we, we, we use those as sort of the four layers that we're, uh, we're dependent on and stand upon um, as the primary stakeholders. And those all can reach out to different areas. And, and we tend to have... Um, advisory committees for these things. So our board of directors also has advisory committees that can be used to gain more insight, more information from folks. And we have a very active schedule of um, of going out to the community. So, for example, I would say in the last um, two months, I have probably gone out um, to at least every town, to some event at every town in our region, at least once and maybe as many as three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's constantly, you, you could go to one time, go to, for example, the, I, the, the IT type staff of a town in the school district, for example, speak with them. And then they invite you back to talk with uh, the public safety folks and the town administration folks. And then you might come back to visit with the planning committee of the town or the economic development committee of the town. So there's this constant conversation that has to go on to not, not only inform people about what we're doing, but to dispel the misconceptions of what we're doing uh, is just as important. Right. So you have to have this constant contact, this constant engagement with the community, and our board helps us with a lot of that, uh, and these advisory committees help us with that too. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, so you're talking about a complex idea. I mean, broadband is both complex technologically, it's complex in terms of its impact. How do you make this understandable for the average person so they can hear you at a presentation or hear you at a meeting and both get it and feel motivated to move forward. Yeah, we learned a long time ago we can't over-technicalize this thing, if that's such a word. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. but we, I mean, we long ago uh, decided we talk about our system in terms of highways and off-ramps and water mains and spigots. And okay. 
that's the best way we've found to talk to people is to say, just like you know the highway system uh, that we have here, we're building the highway. Uh, we're not necessarily because we're largely a middle mile project, not a last mile project. Uh-huh. We talk about ourselves and we give the specific example of the main highway that runs through our region, which is Highway Six uh, here on Cape Cod. And we say uh-huh. we're building the Route Six uh, of uh, of the 21st century, but instead of moving cars and trucks, uh, we're moving bits and bytes and and data uh, through those pipes and on those roads. And so we, we long ago started using those more practical examples that people can understand rather than uh, trying to explain to them how a wavelength of light works on a, on a fiber optic cable. Yes. <laughs> I will just say right off the bat, you, you've got to do that in order to get people to even you know begin. Now, how much of an effort is it to, um, I don't know, adapt this lesson? Because I know that in some cities, some communities, it is the tech person who you know gets the bug, who understands what the value is, but they have this difficult time translating from geek speak. I mean, I, I say this affectionately, of course, into the, you know the the average person. I mean, do they find a partner who you know is their interpreter as they go from door to door? But that seems like a legitimate hurdle to have to get over. Yeah, it really is. And again, you have to you know address the audience that you have in front of you uh, in such a way that they will understand what you're talking about. And if you go too far off the deep end of technical speak, you've lost them. And right. So it is very important. And I'll tell you, I've had great success with um, breaking this into sort of the economic development side of the house, but also the government efficiency side of the house, um, which seems to be a lo- lo- people can grasp that a lot quicker, I think. But mm-hmm. I use those examples of the canal system of the United States in the 1820s, uh, the rail line systems in the 1850s and through the 18, uh, 18, late 1800s, uh, and then the highway system as very good examples uh, because this is all about infrastructure. Uh, that's what it really is, and it's an, it, the infrastructure enables the economic activity, the movement of goods and ideas. Uh, that's what it's all about, and, and if you can get them to c- connect to that roadway example or that water main example or the train example, um, they get it. A light goes off in their heads, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very good uh, you know, analogy to use those. Okay. So let me switch directions here for a minute. Um, It should be noted that you didn't confine your efforts just to the community. You, or at least people working with with Open Cape, went out and also talked a lot to the FCC. Uh, And this was the early days of the administration. This was the early days of the stimulus as an idea, even before it became a law. Uh, writing a national broadband plan, I think, was still a, a, a general topic of discussion, but it wasn't anything concrete. But you guys went to Washington, am I correct? Yes. So, I mean, a couple of things. Early on, we when we first started looking at this issue for us, uh, we tried to look around and see were there examples out there uh, that we could model uh, and, and, and take advantage of. And we looked at things like the folks down in southwest Virginia, the Mass Bro- uh, Mid-Atlantic Broadband Corporation down there. Oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, who have had some success, obviously. Uh, a little bit different model, again, attuned to their region. They use a, a 501c12 um, cooperative model down there, again, because they come from an agriculture that's familiar with cooperatives. Mm-hmm. But we learned a lot from those folks and others, too, that where we looked at their examples. Uh, and then we tailored it to our region and our needs. And, and the difference with us compared to some other grants is that um, we have a different model, and it it's a public-private partnership where 
we're not trying to just address, for example, um, anchor institutions. Uh, ours is about commercial activity supporting uh, the public sector, and that's a little bit different than you find in many of the other examples of, uh, of what the grants are about or what people are trying to achieve. Uh, we're actually focused on the commercial side and, and having that support the public side, and, and that's a big difference, and that's why we went down to the FCC. They were interested in hearing um, different models that were being used uh, in order to develop the national broadband plan. And ours was somewhat different than a lot of the other models they had heard, and they wanted to hear about that. So we went down there and presented it to them so that they could understand uh, uh, how, how ours differed from many others, I think, as part of their formulation of the overall national broadband plan. Okay. So it's good to say, I see that you actually had some input in their, in their thinking early on. Is it important to engage or at least to think about what role the federal government has in all of this? Yes, it is definitely important. I mean, we're sort of involved, I like to think, in a national debate here about, um, you know, long ago uh, we have to make these decisions about infrastructure. Where does it fit within the the organizational model of our country? Um, You know, long ago we decided that roads are, you know, the domain of government largely, Uh, water the same thing. Um, We we put power largely to uh, highly regulated monopolies. Um, Telephones were highly regulated monopoly until they were broken up um, in the the last few decades. Um, So we have these different models that result from um, some experience. So electricity, as we know, you know, there used to be all sorts of private companies running wires all over New York City when electricity was first uh, developed. And, you know, we've changed that. And eventually it took some time for us to decide on a regulatory model. Uh, Is this government domain? Is this private domain? And we're going through that now with broadband. I mean, largely this developed and the telephone companies or the cable TV companies who were involved in different business basically fell into it. Uh, so we're now going through a, you know, a discussion in our country about what is this model going to be. Uh, and we tended to come out on the side of, and ours is just one example, there are many different uh, models here, obviously, but that the public, in our case, represented by a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, because that's what we're really all about, representing the public's interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in our community, uh, has a say in this vital infrastructure for our future. Um, we understand why private companies make their decisions about where they're going to invest their capital and uh, what services they're going to offer. They have a, a responsibility to shareholders and to their boards. Um, but in this vital infrastructure, we think it's critical that the community has some say at the table in where the investment's going to be made and uh, how much it's going to be made so that their interests are represented in these kinds of decisions. So we have a model whereby the nonprofit representing the community's interests owns the physical assets that are being built, licenses a private company that's in the business um, of delivering these kinds of services to offer those services to our community. But if they fail, we can find someone else to do it. So our whole country is involved in this debate. What is the model uh, for broadband? Is it going to be strictly private? Is it going to be a government infrastructure? Is it going to be a highly regulated monopoly or some other model? We're going through that right now. It'll probably take us another five or ten years to work it all out, I think. <laughs> it is definitely something not to um, ignore. And in fact, when Blair Levin was on last week, you know, the, the, uh, the chief architect of the National Broadband Plan, he was very specific and has been very specific with me on a number of occasions about the need to engage 
uh, your your congressperson, uh, someone from the FCC. You know, when all of these invitations to add comments to the process, you know, the USF reform and so forth, that you know, every community or a lot of communities feel very isolated from Washington, particularly the day-to-day processes. But at the same time, it's only by engagement in these processes that you are able, as a community, to to have that say at the table. Is that a correct yes. assessment? Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, in addition to this sort of broader national discussion we're having about where does this this infrastructure sit in terms of its regulatory control and who who controls it, um, there are the more specific things that government can do in order to help aid in, in, the, in getting this infrastructure built. And things like the Universal Service Fund review and changes that are being considered by the FCC, um, the recent changes to um, FCC regulations relating to uh, accessing telephone poles um, in the public right-of-way uh, are, are, are really good developments in ensuring that there's a, a better and fairer playing field out there and that the resources are being allocated in such a way that uh, we can move forward in advancing the infrastructure that we want to see out there. Uh, so those those are definite, you know, uh, proactive t- steps by the federal government through the FCC that are helping uh, specifically to move us all forward a little bit faster. How do you engage local people to care enough to even think about this kind of activity? Well, I, I, again, I think they have to see their own self-interest in it. Um, and, you know, you, you come across different businesses that can need this kind of requirement, uh, you have government entities who see their advantage in it. So I'll give you, a, for example, because we haven't talked too much about that. Um, we we have a, a clear distinction that we need to also develop uh, the regional government services uh, that are available and can be delivered over our system. So within our grant, we're building what's called a municipal regional area network that will link all of our communities of Cape Cod. There are 15 um, over a common network, and in each town, this is like a gigabit circuit, uh, that they can aggregate all their services through a co-location center that we're building, where they can buy common Internet service, they can aggregate, uh, create applications and run them uh, together. Uh, this is, again, we're not county-dominated here. It's small-town-dominated up in this region. Mm-hmm. And so what one small town cannot do or cannot do efficiently the region can do together, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, regional Geographic Information Systems, GIS, that keep track of all the infrastructure in our region. Right now mm-hmm. it's done within individual towns. Well, most problems that we face are actually regional, so why don't we have a common regional GIS server that is accessible over this high-speed high gigabit network that we're creating for them? Mm-hmm. Um, regional Learning Management Systems for schools and, uh, and the colleges here. Uh, before I left Cape Cod Community College, we shifted off of a proprietary learning management system for online learning to an open source uh, system so that the K-12 schools could use the same uh, product. They, there was no way they were going to use the proprietary system. It was just too expensive. So now we have the college of the region and all of the K-12 system being able to use the same learning management system over a common network. You know, mm-hmm. there's huge efficiencies and effectiveness that are achieved by this. The other one is um, we're looking at is a common e-permitting uh, and licensing uh, software as well. Uh, most permits and licenses that people get from their local government are, are what about 88% of them actually are what we call um, basic level uh, applications. So you can do them right at the window. 
but here in our region, again, it's done by the small town, so you have to go and apply for a dog license and get it at the town hall. Uh, you can go get a beach sticker, or what we call a dump sticker. Um, you can apply for a permit to put a water heater in your house. You have to go to the town hall to do all this stuff. It takes mm-hmm. time. It's you know it's inefficient. Uh, so all this can be done online over a common um, e-permitting licensing system that can be offered to all of our communities in a common umbrella service model. So we're doing a lot of that. And the, the government folks who are more and more strapped for money every day um, are looking for ways in order to uh, deliver better services to their community at a cheaper cost. And this is how we intend to do it in our region. Uh, I will say also that this is supported by the, at the state level by the governor and the uh, secretary uh, of Ec- uh, housing and economic development, Greg Bialecki, with a regionalization framework that they want to see put in place. And we're completely consistent with that. So we work uh, with the state as well in implementing this. Right. Okay. And then that all of this, once, you know, as people learn they can do X, Y, and Z online, this increases their enthusiasm for the network. And, and Absolutely. They can see how it's changing, you know, their lives. The costs are going down. Uh, the effectiveness is going up. Uh, you know, e- e- again, <laughs> I'll give you an example. Um, I just recently moved to Cape Cod. I used to live about 60 miles from here. And... Uh, and my wife had to go up and apply for certain permits for, like, accessing beaches and, and, and going to the dump and stuff like that. And she had to go back to the office a couple of times at the town hall, again, taking, you know, three or four hours of her time uh, when she had to, you know, leave work to do it. And, and the person at the counter at the town hall had to take about an hour to go through this with her and get the right permits and things. Uh, this could very easily be done online in a, in a matter of minutes. And so I think that the local uh, populace will quickly pick up to the advantage of this sort of thing. Right, and and just keep on promoting that, and that that's a good thing. Uh, today um, I received a call asking for a um, from a reporter asking for a comment on this legal assault that incumbents in the state of Wisconsin are waging on the state university there that received broadband stimulus money. So it's basically, you know, this reminder that even after the money is in hand, there are communities that are going to have to fight off persistent attacks and potential legal actions and so forth. Now, in Massachusetts, you have a favorable political climate for community broadband. But should other communities have some sort of contingency plans for possible ongoing skirmishes or just all-out attacks that they may face down the road, even you know, not necessarily just stimulus grant winners, but anyone who's promoting uh, a community network. Well, I think I can understand what's happening to them. It's obviously different in each community and each region what's going on and how the incumbents might feel about things. We've always been very open um, and transparent in everything that we've done. Uh, we early on, before we even got involved in the stimulus, had met with. Uh, the incumbent, uh, Verizon, uh, is the incumbent out here, and the um, uh, Comcast provides cable to most all the region. And so we early on met with them, and, and they're you know fully engaged and aware of what we are doing. Um, and you know they have their own internal corporate reasons as to making decisions about what they're going to do or not going to do. Uh, but we've we've uh, encountered no direct uh, you know interference from them in any way. Uh, we've offered and encouraged them to bid on RFPs that we had for the uh, uh, building and operation of our network. Uh, we have an open um, uh, framework for our project in that there's dark fiber available for lease that for, potentially could help them in the delivery of their services to our region. 
and, and I'll give you a for instance. Let's say on the outer Cape Cod area, if if a Comcast or a Verizon wanted to improve their services in that region, but didn't want to make the huge capital investment um, necessary to upgrade their infrastructure there, they could lease dark fiber from our private licensed operator uh, to improve their own services. So um, I, I don't know what goes on in, inside these companies, but um, they may see that to their own advantage. Mm-hmm. Now, have they taken you up on those offers? Uh, not yet. Well, obviously, we have. They haven't. Uh, they did not bid on any of our RFPs as yet, and um, obviously, they won't uh, look to get leases on dark fiber until the system is completely built. Right. So you just basically work along. I mean, it sounds like you've. Uh, acknowledge the fact that they should be a part of the process. You make every effort to open up and keep them informed of the processes that you guys are involved in, but if they don't respond, you still move forward. Yes. All right, okay. Probably wise, and I assume that you're probably not going to – well, you've already said it. You're not facing any kind of legal action, which is rare but obviously much appreciated since it does tend to eat up a lot of resources to have to deal with that kind of thing. Sure. Right. We're glad that's not happened to us. Mm-hmm. So now, moving beyond the whole and, and coming issue and all that, uh, now that you've received the funding, are you still doing a lot of project planning, or is there there a, does that kind of stop after you get a bunch of money? Well, no. Uh, because, uh, we look at this as four phases, really. Uh, so the first phase was obviously just to you know develop the concept and build the base resource of you know human beings who are interested in our project. Uh, then the objective phase two was can we get the money, which we did through the Commonwealth, um, the broadband bill, and the stimulus bill, which we ultimately do have forty million dollars for our project. Uh-huh. Um, so then you went to into phase three, which is uh, sort of the build. Go ahead and build it now. Uh, and that's broken down into uh, largely permitting, engineering, licensing, uh, make-ready work, preparatory work to the mm-hmm. ultimate build of the system. So we're about in phase three. We're doing make-ready work, that kind of thing with the utilities right now, uh-huh. uh, and, and, and fast approaching when we'll actually start installing the fiber optics on the poles. Uh, we're actually renovating our co-location center that's part of our project. So we're in that phase, but we're fast planning and focusing more and more of our time on how will we use it once it is built. So we so spend a lot okay, of time sorry. on that uh, okay. at this point, moving and transitioning towards, okay, it's going to be built you know, on January, in January of 2013, we're going to be done. And then what are we going to do? And the time to think about that is not in December of 2012. Uh, it was, the time for that was last year. And so uh-huh. we've but surely been transitioning in more and more of our time is spent on what are we going to do with it rather than how are we going to build it. Right. Um, so that's more and more where our planning now focuses a lot on how are we going to use it. Mm-hmm. As as you make this shift, does the composition of the uh, board change very much? Yeah, yeah I, I would say that, honestly, our board is spending more and more time on this kind of issue. What is the transition? Because, again, there's not only a transition of, you know, going from building it to using it. Um, there's also the transition from the folks who are involved right now um, who are building it. Are they going to be the same people who actually operate this um, to the community's advantage, or do we need to have a transition of people uh, away from what were really the project-building folks towards the folks who are going to operate this uh, in the longer term? 
So there's a great, great bit of discussion going on in our board. We have even, you know, like half-day off-sites to, to just go over this. What is the transition going to be? How are we going to ensure the sustainability of the business? Uh, what are the operating costs related to running this thing over time? What are the revenue generators for it? Um, it's a business, and you have to think about it as a business. And the time to think about it is now, not a year from now when, you, when you're just completing the project. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, in essence, it's thinking of it from or, or shifting to look at if we if we have a business, okay, so we're no longer in the build-out mode. If we have a business, we got to put our business management hats on now. Absolutely, uh, because there are huge, uh, you know, operating costs associated with running one of these. Um, you have to pay, you know, poll licensing fees annually. Uh, you have a lot of um, license and lease applications that you have to pay for. You have to maintain insurance, insurity bonds, uh, all sorts of issues. Again, you're, you're, it's a telecommunications business, and, and you have to think about that long-term sustainable business model and how is it going to work. Um, it's not just about building it and saying we're done. It's more and more about the sustainable business that you have to create and maintain over time. Okay. And so as you see needs then for different people, different skill sets and so forth, the board will make adjustments accordingly. Exactly. So we might expand the board a little bit, uh, look to get more um, maybe financial background folks. Um, and we do have a lot of retirees on Cape Cod who have time and are willing to participate with us. Uh, so we might look to more of that rather than an engineer and that sort of thing. Um, who helped us a lot with, um, you know, the building of the project. So, okay. yeah, there's, there's definitely a need to start looking at, you know, folks who have that kind of business background um, to help us more and more as we go into the future. And as these changes happen, will you continue with the same types of outreach to that, that brought consensus and support to the project initially, um, or will your outreach to the community uh, have to evolve as well? And if so, how do you see it evolving? Yeah, I think that as we go forward, the you know the role that we've had in kind of educating people and building this uh, huge coalition of folks who are interested in this and supportive of this uh, will then transition to, are we in fact doing what you need us to do? Uh, and that's our model, again, is a little bit different in that we have the nonprofit Open Cape Corporation representing the interests of the community. We license private companies to operate the network or the co-location center. Um, mm -hmm. Those folks are operating to a standard that we've prescribed for them um, to meet the needs that our community has. Uh, so if the community's needs are not being met, let's say that the, um, someone feels they weren't felt uh, dealt with fairly and equitably within what is an open uh, network system, uh, they could come to OpenCape, the corporation, representing their interests, who then is the intermediary with that private company who's delivering the service. And if ultimately we weren't satisfied with the way they were delivering the service, uh, we have mechanisms by which we can declare them in default and find another company to do it. So in, increasingly as we go forward, it will be helping the communities to develop the services that are needed uh, and ensuring that they're delivered effectively in a, in a cost-efficient manner. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the various folks like the you know the business associations and the homeowner associations and so forth will all find ways in which they can 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 put it in this impact and and continue to make the project theirs. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, for example, our our private operator that we selected through a you know a, a, a very rigorous and fair 
process of RFPs, uh, is a company called CapeNet. I know that last week, for example, they met with the Chamber of Commerce uh, here on Cape Cod to talk about ways in which they can serve the business, small business community of the Cape Cod region uh, and ask them if they could provide, you know, even survey data from the Cape Cod Chamber about the needs of each of the businesses in our region so that they can develop, uh, you know, the, the effective service models that are needed by those businesses. Uh, so those are the kind of things we expect to be happening. Gotcha. And I, I can see where um, a lot of this makes sense. I mean, really, the the, the thing that first attracted my attention to Open Cape back in well, 2009, way back then it seems like, uh, was was all the planning, all the attention to details in the planning process. Uh, because one of the things I felt was a byproduct of the compressed application time for stimulus grants was a just complete lack of planning on the parts of many communities that just wanted to figure out how to get the money, and, and I guess assuming that they would do the planning later after they actually won anything. And, um, right. I, I mean, a lot of folks, it, the, I think you were even the one who coined these terms. I used to have a three categories of it was the hopeful and the wishful. and Oh, the, yes. <laughs> I, I really like that because, again, there were folks who saw that there was stimulus money available uh, in the broadband area, and they tried to throw something together, right? They maybe uh-huh. even had a good idea, but there really hadn't been a lot of thought behind it until that point. Uh, we and others had been thinking about this for years and working upon it, and uh, when it came time that that stimulus uh, was announced, um, we were ready uh, because we had been thinking about it for three years and, and you know, detailing our plans and what we needed to do and what our, our uh, goals were. So we were, we were primed and ready, and uh, that was a big advantage, obviously. Right. And it's interesting because we had um, the the city of Powell, Wyoming, on the show, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, and they have a public-private partnership and a very interesting controlled open access um, approach that they're using. But their planning session was also, I mean, it was two years long. I mean, they're only a community of five, 6,000 people. Yet there was a tremendous amount of time. I know the people who are anxious to get broadband, you know, they want to have it yesterday. And with the compressed broadband stimulus uh, application period, there was this whole era of, oh, we're going to do this now because we have money next year, and then we're going to have broadband networks in two years. But it sounds like time in the planning process is a critical element here. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And and I think, you know, even within the grant you know, execution, for example, to, to actually, you know, finish the construction process. There is, a, a, you know, a great um, focus on following through with a construction plan, for example, uh, that seems very um, uh, modeled on, a, on a, a nice balanced and flat line of, of production, and, and you can't do that. Most of the time, I mean, I think we can build our network in about nine months, uh, frankly, but we actually need the two and a half years in advance of that uh, in order to do all of the planning and preparatory work. You know, the, the amounts of, uh, of applications you have to do with the utilities, the permitting that you have to obtain, uh, this huge amount of uh, just the legal work to comply with the grant, um, to go through the detailed RFP processes in order to know that you're going to meet any requirement that an auditor will have for you, uh, or any requirement of a future IG in fact, in, you know, investigation of you, this 
huge preparatory work needed before you can actually start putting that fiber on the pole. Um, and so there's not just, I got the grant uh, one day, and then, you know, six months later you're installing it. I think even the president said there's no such thing as a, as a shovel-ready project. Um, right. And that's because all of this stuff has to be done. Uh, I'm going through right now, for example, an EA amendment uh, to our original environmental assessment. We received the FONSI last year, um, uh-huh. a finding of no significant impact. Well, as you go through the detailed planning and engineering of your path, um, you know, and you look at these, you know, you really have an engineer out there and a surveyor out there. You say, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to go a block this way and a block that way. Well, that requires you now to go back to the environmental assessment process with the NTIA uh, and get that approved. I mean, this is huge resource uh, consumption on our part uh, in terms of time and money to get all of this stuff done. And uh, it's really the bulk of the job. It's uh, building it seems, and I've said this to folks already, you know, I think building it's going to be the easy part. It's it's the, the planning and the preparatory work that is really the, the, the major component of what we're doing. And it's kind of interesting because one of the uh, audience members that's in the chat room posed that very question while you were while you were answering it, which was, you know, there there has to be a reality check of, you know, there's shovel ready, which is a great concept, but then there is the reality of all of the permitting, all of right of way. I mean, right of way almost requires two lawyers, I think, full time just to. Uh, well, well I'll, I'll tell you, I'm glad that when we when we first formed our corporation. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a, a local uh, law firm. Or they have a Boston. Uh, it's a large Boston firm, but they have a Cape Cod office. Uh, and that firm, uh, Nutter McLennan and Fish, um, offered pro bono service to us. They thought what we were doing was valuable. Again, one of our community members had joined on the bandwagon with us, mm-hmm. and they did pro bono work for us. And we were very, very fortunate that they did because they have a, you know a stable of lawyers who are expert in different areas. You know, mm-hmm. telecommunications, government regulation. Uh, trademark, IRS, you name it, and having them in our court to help us with all of these many, many issues of, of legal problems, it, 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 I'll tell you, that was so valuable to us. And I think if you just had had like um, a, a one one person uh, legal office that was, uh, you know, part of your grant application, uh, much as you would have had their enthusiasm, they would have quickly found that they were overwhelmed with the many, many different legal issues that we've had to confront. Right. And I did, in fact, I just finished writing a uh, article for Broadband Properties magazine in which we discussed uh, that whole issue of just the legal aspect and what does it all mean and what kinds of precautions. I mean, you could write a book about just the, the components, the individual components of each phase of this project could be its own novel. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really challenging that we have to, for example, in our case, we have to go across the Cape Cod Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's controlled by the Army Corps of Engineers, whole separate different you know, regulatory environment, permitting operation that you have to go through. Uh, you have to go through a real estate easement process. Very complex, difficult, time-consuming, uh, and costly. And all of those things, uh, you have to get through them in order to be able to put the fiber on the pole. And uh, it, it's, again, the construction part's going to be the easy part compared to all the way we had to go through on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to be at the NATOA conference, you were telling me earlier. This is in, uh, was it the 20th, 19th, 20th of September, Yes. How important is it for communities to get out to these kinds of events? Well, it, there's always value, obviously, in going to these kinds of things or even doing them online, like listening to a show like this. Um, the NTIA has offered some uh, specific topic-related uh, 
uh, online events, which are very helpful because it's hard to get to go to the conferences. It's better to do them online, in my my opinion. Uh, we even have in New England a group of us that have got the grants throughout New England who get on the phone uh, once a month or so to talk about our common problems. But NATOA in particular, uh, I know Joanne Hovis and I uh, have had, uh, frankly, she was one of the folks early on that we were asking questions of. We'd started to devise what we might do in our region, and this is, you know, in the 2007 time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, very po- very helpful group, very influential, um, forward-leaning, and so whenever you can have an engagement with them, it's it's uh, very important because they, they frankly have a lot of answers, and there's a lot of folks you're going to encounter at that kind of a conference um, who can help you with the common problems that we're all suffering. Right, and I, I probably I, I don't think I gave the full-on, you know, what does NATOA stand for, but if you were to give a 30-second description of what NATOA is, you would say what? <laughs> Well, the acronym actually stands for the National Association of Telecommunication Owners and Administrators, and uh, it's a, 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 an organization that promotes uh, municipal and uh, public uh, network development, basically, is how I would describe it. Okay. Um, been very helpful in a lot of these different uh, uh, issues that are being confronted by most of us who are engaged in this kind of business. Interesting. Now, someone asked, uh, one, of the, one of the audience asked, um, who owns the utility and telephone poles in your area? Uh, eight and eight. All of our poles are jointly owned. Uh, well, not all of them, but almost all of our poles are jointly owned, um, which is the case most most areas of the country. Uh, Verizon uh, throughout our our territory, and we have two power companies, NSTAR and National Grid. Okay. So we have both those companies, um, and we've been working uh, with them to do all of our licensing applications and uh, make ready work. Uh, And I'm sure as everybody else is going through now, um, we confront these uh, additional issues of, as they know, Verizon had a strike for two two weeks. Uh, Again, no make ready is done during that time. Uh, And we recently had the hurricane just pass through here now. That'll probably have a two-week or a four-week impact on the company's availability to do um, make ready work or pole walkouts in our region. So I think we're all going to suffer another setback in addition to the um, lack of manufacturer capacity for fiber that uh, has, has had an impact on all of our projects as well. Okay. I'm going to, I seem to be maybe jumping around a little bit, but I'm getting a number of questions and comments from our um, audience in the chat room. I want to bring up some of their questions, and, and I gather they're from rural areas because two of the things that have been brought up is, um, you know, how do you work with, well, in their case, farmers, who may, you know, whose land you might need to to run infrastructure on, and I think this still applies even for more urban areas as well. I mean, there there are discussions about, you know, if we can put a tower, if we're doing a wireless network, or we can provide conduit and somehow involve the properties of, you know, business owners and so forth. I mean, those are issues I'm assuming that are addressed in the planning phase that you may have to rely on. Um, Local property yeah. owners of one sort or another. Yeah. So in our case, uh, we have 350 miles of fiber altogether. Um, mm-hmm. We deliberately chose to stay in the right of way, the public right of way, um, because again, the timeline is short, and going through a process of individual property owners through a new path, for example, uh, would take years. Uh, so we chose to stay in the public utility uh, right of way. Uh, for most of our fiber. We also have a microwave component in our region. As we just experienced a hurricane, we worry about those things. So we have a backup system for public safety uh, that overlays our fiber network and is integral to it. 
we chose to go on what are uh, publicly owned water towers in our region uh, because of one, they're on elevated soil already. Um, they are very high. They're very strong. They'll survive a hurricane. Uh, and they would allow for a fairly quick access to them mm-hmm. rather than building a new tower, which would be complicated and uh, difficult to achieve within the time frame that we all have with these grants. Right. And, in fact, one of uh, one of the guests here or one of the audience members here commented that uh, where they are, which I believe is in, in the U.K., uh, the landowners actually give free uh, easements in order to get the connections themselves. So in essence, they become part of the the network or one of the customers. And so basically, rather than this being an imposition on them, this you know they're they're um, allowing you to come in helps them. So we create a you know at a very small micro level a win win situation even down at the individual property owner level. Yeah, we did that. So in our in the case of the water towers in our region, they mm-hmm. can be part of the town municipality. They can be an independent water district or fire mm-hmm. district that can own that tower. And uh, we're connecting them to the municipal regional area network where they will get their uh, Internet service and be able to participate in common applications across the region uh, and to include potentially phone service. And they also may uh, be able to find a way to either at least improve and maybe not expand their um, their SCADA networks that they have for all the water systems within mm-hmm. the region. So mm-hmm. we, we do offer them something in exchange for going on their towers. Okay. And I could see where that would definitely uh, help folks out. I did get someone who was asking about the Smarter Cape Summit process. Are you guys doing a summit? Like a yeah, so we summit? had one in May. Uh, okay. We had the director of the BTOP program came and spoke at that. The governor of Massachusetts came and spoke at that. But it was, it, it's again, this, uh, this step beyond just open Cape, the broadband um, solution. Uh, we are the underpinning infrastructure, and, and this is really about economic development and civic engagement, which involves many, many other stakeholders, such as the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, the Cape Cod Commission, the Cape Cod Economic Development Council, the Cape Cod Technology Council. And all of us are working together in a partnership called Smarter Cape um, to advance smarter ideas, smarter ways of doing things on our, in our region using this infrastructure to our best advantage. The first uh, event we held was this past May uh, called the Smarter Cape Summit. We'll be holding another one next May, uh, and we're engaged every week, actually, in developing the vision for the future for our region. When you think about connected cities and other things that are going on around the country, there are some good examples, the uh, Intelligent Community Forum and others, um, there are good ideas about how to do things smarter in your region, whether that be wastewater management, solid waste management, uh, just government services. I gave you some examples like uh, e-permitting and regional GIS. So we're developing through the Smarter Cape concept and the Smarter Cape partnership, which includes Open Cape, um, this whole concept. We're moving this forward, and the Smarter Cape Summit in May this year and the one that will follow next year are integral to that process. Mm-hmm. This has been extremely fascinating. We're down to our last minute and have and been having a great time and lots of uh, chat room discussion. And so, Dan, I want to thank you for uh, being part of the show, being one of our early guests, and, and all of that has been really fantastic. But I really appreciate your time and also the benefit of learning from your experiences. Well, thank you very much, Craig, and uh, we wish you well with this new format um, and a new way of uh, communicating among us ourselves and all those folks who are interested in uh, broadband development in the United States. 
Great. And I want to thank our sponsor, Broad, uh, Hiawatha Broadband uh, Communications, and also our media partners, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, and MuniWireless.com. Thank you, and we will see you not until September. I'm going to take a little time to regroup here, and uh, but we have a number of guests lined up for uh, September, plus I will be at a number of conferences, including the TOA, where I'll be broadcasting live from those. So there's going to be a lot going on in September. We look forward to seeing uh, everyone continue to hang out with us. Talk to you soon. Have a nice day.